Welcome to episode 175 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. On today's show, we're talking to William Saito, author of An Unprogrammed Life, Adventures of an Incurable Entrepreneur. Hey, William, welcome to the show. Right. Thank yeah. you for having me. So, William, I, the way you came to our attention is your book, An Unprogrammed Life. Um, I guess someone on Startup Guild mentioned that they wanted it as a part of a contest or, or something. And uh, I've been reading it. I'm not, I have to confess, I'm not completely done with it. I'm about halfway through. And it really is fascinating. You've had a, 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 a really interesting life, at least so far. Um, so I was hoping maybe we could get, I mean, I don't want to give away the entire book, but maybe we could talk about some parts of your life and go through some of the things that you've done through this interview and just tell us some of the more interesting stories. Would that be okay? Sure. Yeah. No, writing a book is a, an entrepreneurial experience in itself. So, <laughs> right, right. So, um, let's see. Where do we want to start here? Um, I guess I, I would like to. Uh, it, I guess one of the most interesting things that, uh, at least the first part of the book, was that you had learned a program because I think it was your high school math teacher had discovered that you were pretty much pretty well beyond the rest of the class. And he had suggested to your parents that you needed a computer. And I thought that whole, that whole story around that was really interesting. And in fact, I think you were what, like 12, 11 years yeah, old? Actually, yeah, it was actually junior high. And uh, my parents actually wanted to give me some sort of heads up, uh, some advantage since English wasn't their strong suit. And so what, what they could only teach me and give me an advantage in was mathematics. And they did so that the school had a problem with giving me enough to uh, keep me occupied during math lessons. So the uh, teacher basically said, hey, uh, we can't teach him anything anymore. Right. And it, it, the, um, I, th I think you, you said that your, your parents would give you, you would get these books, these Japanese math lessons from relatives back in Japan. And you said that you would like avoid going home after school as much as possible because your homework, your home homework was harder than your normal homework. Yeah, that's probably true. Uh, the, the the school homework I was able to finish pretty quickly, but I guess the uh, parents tend to throttle the amount so that you keep busy and you don't like mess around outside too much. And so, yeah, there was considerable home homework uh, after getting home. So, so would you say that the the tiger mom, uh, what's it, the, the whole tiger mom controversy started last year, and it was about Chinese mothers being really pushing their kids to excel. So, I guess that extends to Japanese mothers as well, right? I think it might be an Asian trend, but I'm not trying to uh, generalize here. I think what happens is they leave their perfectly good home country and they come to the United States, the land of opportunity, and they realize that they won't be able to give them all the benefits of, say, you know, the normal American living down the street. And so they try to emphasize a certain area or a certain skill that's universal, whether that's music or mathematics or 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 science. But Obviously, because they can't do the English part, they try to overcompensate in the other areas. And yeah, I mean, we, we had these stereotypes when I was growing up as well. I don't know how it is recently, but uh, yes, they were definitely there back then. Right, and, and it extended to piano lessons for you, right? I mean, you, you said to, the, to, to this day, you almost can't stand the sound of a piano because you were tortured with 
having to take lessons year after year when you just really weren't into it? Yeah, no, it's, it's, it, I, I still enjoy listening to classical music. My Uh problem is that, uh, if you put a piano in front of me, I've deprogrammed myself so much that, you know, it, it, it gives me chills to touch a, 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 a key on a keyboard there. So. so that's a good lesson for parents who are pushing their kids too hard, right? It just has the total backfire effect. Yeah, I mean, I think it, it, there's a certain level of sanity where, you know, when, when the kid is obviously not going to become uh, a orchestra performer per se, there's no really need to hire two piano teachers, for example, and, and to shove it into them. But, I mean, uh, looking back on it, adding that that skill and diversity for growing up was very helpful. I think, yeah, they just overdid it. And at a certain time when people, you know, when, when the kids are pushing back so much that, that they have to hide from it, that should be a warning sign to parents. But playing piano can be such a great skill at parties. <laughs> there are people, I, I think it's a function of how you also um, teach whatever lesson it is. And if it's a function of, so, so mathematics, for example, it's, it's, it's in a lot of cases just repeating a lot of the things over and over and understanding uh, what the mistakes were and, and, and basically trying it with different numbers. But for piano, it, it's not a function of just replaying that musical piece the uh, same time over. It's, it's, it's understanding why you're playing and getting the nuances and getting the rhythm and getting the flow and understanding that it's music and it's not torture. And so what happens then is the people who get it and realize that they could manipulate it and actually create music uh, get it and, and then they, they play spontaneously at parties and stuff. So I know friends like that. So I did something similar with computers where instead of playing games, for example, I was able to write the programs and, and show off in, in that different way. Right. And, and so in terms of your, uh, the, the, your math skills, your math skills were, were beyond the rest of class. And I thought what was sort of fascinating is when you're, I guess you had a parent teacher conference and the teacher suggested your parents that you, that they buy you a computer, but your parents weren't, weren't, they didn't just go out and buy you like a TR, TRS 80 or something. They really went whole hog. And I mean, I'd be curious, I think it'd be interesting to hear a little bit of that story. Yeah, no, and actually, you know, I got called into parent teacher conferences a lot because my English skills uh, weren't up to par as well. And the teacher always said, hey, you know, your kid has a problem, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought, oh, it's going to be one of those parent teacher conferences. But in this particular case, the science teacher basically told my parents that, hey, you should, you know, get this kid a computer. And oh, by the way, this company called IBM just came out with something called the uh, IBM PC. You should uh, go out and buy it. And so my, my parents being Asian, the, the comments made by a teacher is akin to the word of God. And so they said, okay, fine. Um, unfortunately, we weren't very well off even at that point. So, you know, they had to take a second mortgage out on their house and basically with that loan money purchase uh, back then, probably uh, one of the more innovative computers that was uh, relatively expensive even to this day and age. Yeah, and, and and so you, it wasn't long before you started to teach yourself how to program, right? I mean, this is back in the day where there wasn't the internet and there weren't a million video games that you you know what, that you actually to do something with it. A lot of times you'd have to kind of, I don't know, learn how to write code, right? Yeah, you boot into it, and you know one of the default settings was you go into basic, and it wasn't that you had thousands of games where you could just stick the floppy disk in, power it on, and you could play games all day, which was probably a good thing. 
so what ended up happening was that you had to create your own games and you had to write your own programs to um, entertain yourself. And so that that lack of games was really the the catalyst for you to become creative yourself. Right. And and you were what, teaching yourself basic or, or were you actually playing around with other languages as well? So it started off with basic because that, you know, that's what starts off when you when you start the, the computer up and it leaves you with this prop line. Uh, but back then, I think what was more revolutionary was uh, there was a form of assembler that some of the older kids knew that I started dabbling with. But my breakthrough moment was really when uh, 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 a couple with something called Turbo Pascal. And it occurred to me that one could write this program. And while this day and age this is not a big deal, uh, you could actually compile the program, put it on a floppy disk, give it to someone, and all they needed to do was run the, write the program name, and it would run. This was fundamentally different because if you had just basic, you had to give someone the source code, they had to somehow copy it onto the computer, they had to then run it, and it, 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 was, it was pretty tedious. Whereas if you had a self-encapsulated program like you do today where you double-click on the icon, it's very easy for anybody to actually just run the program and, and get on with it. And so this was my breakthrough where having this software that this company called Borland created, I was able to create my own software and actually uh, give them to people. Yeah, actually, I remember uh, Turbo Pascal was my first programming language after BASIC. So what year was this for you that you when you first got the computer and started playing around with uh, Turbo Pascal? Oh, gosh, this was like 1982, 83. I, I don't remember. It's, uh, because the, the IBM PC came out around 1981, and the, the Turbo Pascal event, that, that life-changing moment, was relatively soon thereafter. Yeah, because I, I think I remember doing Pascal right around. I, I'm, I'm, I may maybe been a couple years behind you. I think I started playing around around 1985, 86. Uh-huh, and... Uh-huh. I also learned it sort of messing around and doing some like independent studies. And I think it was the, I was the, my senior year, I did an internship with an engineering firm and they hired me to write, you know, Turbo Pascal, which, which by then it become sort of object oriented Pascal. Uh-huh. And it was the summer before my freshman year of college, they actually hired me to work, you know, as a professional programmer, which is pretty cool. But you blew me away because you did that. You did sort of a similar thing at like the age of, 12? <laughs> is that right? Well, you know, ignorance is bliss, right? So what's professional programmer, right? And so I was just kind of writing away and then found out, hey, you could write programs and make money with it. So, uh, yeah, I guess uh, I kind of caught that uh, bug pretty early on. Yeah, but I, what I mean to say is that you were hired by uh, a group at Merrill Lynch to actually write a, uh, a, an option modeling uh, uh, function for them, right? It, it actually wasn't as sexy as that. It actually started off with the friends of that same science teacher who recommended that my parents buy the computer. They asked him and said, hey, can you, the science teacher, uh, help us write this uh, program that's kind of difficult to do constantly on an HP 28C? And uh, the, the teacher actually you know, would recommend the computer but didn't know how to program himself. So, But he said, hey, I have this student who recently got this computer. Uh, maybe he could help. And you know, my, my biggest uh, problem is I never know how to say no. So I said, sure, I'll, I'll help. And uh, it ended up starting uh, on weekends where I would uh, take their specs and see how they do the calculations on their HP. 
and, and try to replicate it on uh, basically what, what's Turbo Pascal. And obviously, some of this higher math functions and the financial calculations uh, were actually pretty difficult to understand at first. So there are many, many iterations that we had to go through. But ultimately, we wrote the program, and, and they used it, and they were very happy with it. And what ended up happening was they were acquired by another company, which was acquired by another company. And, you know, you're, you're modifying the program as these acquisitions go on. And that company ended up becoming Merrill Lynch. Oh, I see. Okay. Cause I would just think it would be sort of uh, amazing that the, I just love, love to look at the faces of some, you know, quant group at Merrill Lynch. And they have like this 12 year old kid walk in and say, all right, what, what do you need done? <laughs> yeah. yeah. Seems- I think it was like the granddaddy or the great granddaddy, the quant calculations and such. But, but yeah, I mean, I, you know, you think you know math, but when you get into these worlds, it was, uh, you know, we spent many weekends, and they were very patient in explaining to me, but, you know, I had a grasp of math. It's just, how do you then translate that to the lines of Pascal code? Right, right, right. And how long did that go on for? I think it went on for about two years. My, 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 my dad was uh, definitely very supportive of that because the clients were about an hour and a half away, so every weekend, you know, we'd drive there and... Uh, I'd be meeting, quote unquote, the clients while my dad was probably in the parking lot somewhere reading or eating donuts or something. And then, you know, he'd drive me back. But uh, yeah, that, got on, that went on for about a year and a half, two years. Right. Because you guys lived out sort of near Riverside, right? Uh, no, we lived in a place Riverside. called Walnut. So it's, yeah, so it's about, about an hour east of Los Angeles. And the office, if I remember, was in Burbank. So it's about 30 minutes north of L.A. So... Uh, back then, I guess there was no direct freeway from uh, Walnut to Burbank, and it took about an hour and a half. Oh yeah, what a that's, anyway. That, that's amazing, and and they were actually paying you to do this, huh? I mean, it was uh, you know this wasn't just sort of like some fun little internship that he that your science teacher set up for you. Yeah, that was the interesting part because I, I was just having fun just to do it for the heck of it. But you know, they ended up giving me money on a constant basis, and and we never negotiated anything, but. But if I remember correctly, this was enough money for me to feed my addiction and, and buy different compilers and more computer parts and such, and that kind of started the whole the whole deal. Right, right. And uh, it, I guess it wasn't too long after this. I mean, you were early in high school. You went, you ran into sort of what I would describe as your partner in crime. Uh, I guess Toss. Is my pronouncing that correctly? Tosh, yes. Uh huh. Tosh, Tosh, and, and you guys end up starting. Uh, your first company together in high school. You, you, you were, um, it was called what, IO Software, and you started, I think, you were, it sounded like you were pretty young, like maybe your sophomore, junior year in high school. Yeah, so he was uh, similar in nature. Um, he's probably more grounded and more towards the hardware side. You know, he could, he could use a soldering iron and, and actually put the computer together, whereas I was kind of like the software guy. Um, and we were always the guys that were ostracized by the other high school kids and we weren't as bad as the chess club, but you know, we were kind of on the side <laughs> there always in the back of math class and looking at computer magazines. Right. Right. And so I don't know, could you, could you just maybe tell us a little bit the story about IO software I and mean, why did you start it and, and, and how did it evolve over time while you were in school? Yeah. So we, we got a lot of bit programming jobs. Um, one of the things that, uh, our high school required was that we had to put a hundred hours of volunteer uh, in before we could get, go to the uh, next grade. And so a hundred hours of volunteers is actually a lot, but we kind of cheated in that a lot of the volunteering we did, we wrote software programs to the companies that we were uh, volunteering for. Um, through that network, we got 
lots of other uh, requests. So, hey, can you write this? Or, hey, can you write that? And the other thing that we realized is that um, you can uh, buy things at computer wholesalers and such. And if you have something called a reseller permit, you don't have to pay the sales tax on it because what you end up doing is you buy products, you, you put it together, add value to it, and then you resell it. Uh, there's no point in double taxation. So this reseller permit was, was something very valuable for us to lower the cost of buying our, our toys and parts. But obviously, in order to have a reseller permit, you needed to have a company. So that kind of started the whole thing. But we were getting these bit jobs uh, throughout high school. And then I go to uh, college, and we're, we're doing even more uh, software work as time goes on. But ultimately, this catches the eye of a Japanese company who wants to come and see our uh, offices, which at that point was being run in the dorm rooms at the university, which probably did not look good. And so we spent the weekend basically renting some office space somewhere, uh, and I still remember this. This is we got the phone call on a Thursday that they wanted to come visit us. On a Friday, we we rented this space. You know, and this is a bunch of teenagers going and signing a lease agreement. <laughs> um, on a Saturday, we went to the Home Depot and getting the stationery and stuff. And Sunday, we borrowed computers from people. And on Monday, we had you know our friends pose as uh, employees. And when the clients came from Japan, they said, "Well, they they." they kind of were surprised that we were as young as we were, but you know, we had at least an office and that's kind of the official part where we transitioned, where now what happens is obviously when you rent a space, you're on the tax records. And so, you know, then, you know, you might as well incorporate, you might as well start paying taxes. And well, if you go do and do that, you might as well try to uh, see where it'll go. And uh, we, we then started putting more considerable effort into growing the company. Yeah, I, I, I thought it was really interesting that the part of the story where you're, uh, you know, the, the, the group for the Japanese corporation, um, you said, was that NEC? Was that the company at the yeah, time or was it another correct. company? Yeah. And they came to visit you. And how was your Japanese at that time? Because it sounded like that your Japanese was good in some ways and not as good as others um, at that age since you were, you know, mostly just speaking Japanese at home. Yeah, Japanese is a pretty difficult language. Um, I've been in Japan, Tokyo for uh, at least eight years, and every day I learn something new. You know, it's a it's a country that, depending on who you're talking to, age wise, there are eighty ways of different uh, eighty different ways of saying you or I, and based on that, you know, you have to be careful on how you use those pronouns. And when you learn Japanese as a kid in a kind of a, a vacuum overseas, it tends to be this baby Japanese and. Um, when we were doing this, uh, I was, you know, if you look back on it, very surprised that they put up with how much we did. But I think I, I did have enough of a language capability to to just hold on and, and, and to grow beyond that. And so it was kind of ironic that because I did this business and because I did it with a Japanese company, that my Japanese also improved in parallel because of that. And yeah, so it was, it was on-the-job training for both learning business Japanese, but it was also on-the-job training to learn how to run a company. So, yeah, it was it was interesting times, Ben. So, I, 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 if you look back on it, it was pretty amazing that they did put up with what they did. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember my my roommates in college were both Korean, and neither of them could speak Korean very well. They could they could understand their parents and would speak English back to their parents, which I thought was really sort of amazing because their their parents couldn't speak English very well. So. When you were growing up, I mean, did did your parents work with you 
on reading and writing Japanese, or was it just purely spoken for you at that time? Yeah, no, they they did put a lot of emphasis in the reading and writing aspect of Japanese. We were not rich enough to what normal Japanese families did was on the weekends they sent their kids to Japanese school. Um, we weren't we weren't affluent enough to do that. So to make up for it, my my mom did uh, teach that language skill, and I and I, you know I'm very very actually thankful for that because language skill is not just the the ability to speak another language. I think it allows you to think from different perspectives and to understand different cultures and to adapt and, and, and so on. So I, I think language is not just useful for speaking a language and, 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 and perhaps learning Japanese is not the most efficient thing given that you know only 1.7% of the world population uses it. But because that was inculcated in me, it allowed me to think from a more flexible perspective, which I think is important when you have to deal with, you know, Con- uh, companies, not just in Japan, but all around the world. Right, right. And, and, it, and I guess which is sort of, I don't know, I don't know if I would call it ironic, but it was sort of interesting that what ended up happening for you is you, you sort of fell into doing a lot of localization work for the Japanese companies. So even though Japanese wasn't necessarily your strong point, that's what you spent your, a lot of time having to, I mean, if not do, manage, right? Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I, I did. My Japanese skills weren't good enough to actually do the actual translation itself. But yeah, we did hire a lot of um, bilingual Japanese people, and especially Japanese students who were studying in the United States to help and do a lot of these translation localization things uh, in the early early days. Yeah, you know, you know what was really I was really impressed with, and I thought it was a kind of a cool story is that you had to try and figure out how to. Um, Print out or did, no? It was display Japanese characters on. Um, I, I guess it was on a normal on, on a certain type of computer, which weren't which didn't have the memory to do it. You had to do this sort of amazing feat, which turned into like using the equivalent of using like multi-byte, almost like Unicode before there was a Unicode. Yeah. So so most people today don't really see the difference in different languages that are that are computers today will display. Japanese or Arabic just as easily as they do English because it's in Unicode. And Unicode obviously works because everything is defined in 16-bit terms. But back then, memory used to be very, very expensive. And, um, you know, it used to be an 8-bit world. So obviously, if you have an 8-bit world and you have 256 possibilities for the English language, that's, you know, fine. It's, 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 it's more than enough. But when you have Japanese characters and the kanji characters that are also pretty complicated in, in writing from a bitmap perspective, you have tens of thousands. And so we have this challenge of how do you fit tens of thousands of characters in an 8-bit world? And so we had to create the different mathematical feats to be able to represent that, and not only represent it, but do it relatively quickly so that the, the user doesn't get you know, bored while it you know, forms on the screen. Right, right. And so what, what was the magic trick? I mean, how did you figure that out? It, I mean, because at the time, it would just really, it, it sounded like the other companies hadn't been able to even, even accomplish such a, such a feat. Yeah, so there were a lot of competing different ways for doing it. But essentially, we reserved uh, some uh, characters that typically in the IBM PC world when it was first uh, released, they were used as uh, graphical characters. You know, they were the happy faces, hash marks, uh, dotted patterns and such. And so we cannibalized that area and basically 
if we showed if if that character came up while we were uh, displaying something on the screen, we actually waited for the next character that followed, and that right. combination then formed like a window into a second set or a second attribute to display that kanji Japanese character. So we use we use these markers in the character sets to to then wait for the second or maybe even third character subsequent to that and wait long enough so that that information will then represent the the proper Japanese character. Right, right. And um, and then later on, how much longer was it before the formal, I guess, Unicode standard was adopted? Yeah, Unicode, I don't remember exactly when, but it was still quite a ways after, I think... I, I, I mean, I could be wrong, but I think NT 4.0 or something like that was the first OS that really used Unicode to begin with. I know the Mac OS might have been a little bit earlier, but it, it took a while for Unicode to to um, fully come into its own. And I think it's only just been recently, especially with the web and such, that, that Unicode is now just, just commonplace. So Unicode is maybe really coming out on its own in the last 10 years. So, actually, one thing I wanted to ask you about, um, you know, that I guess maybe chronologically happened for, um, before the iOS software stuff, uh, IO, was it IO Technologies, the name of the company? No, IO Software, I guess, IO took software, off. Yes. Was, yeah, is that you graduated a year early. Um, you managed to get some, you know, credits from taking some um, local community college classes and things. And you actually, it sounded like you really you did extremely well on your on your entrance exams and everything like that and your in your in your uh, grades but rather than going off to say MIT or Harvard or something you decided to go to UC Riverside just because just in order so that you could continue working with with Tosh is is that right yeah it, it, it's all interrelated so as you pointed out the piano lessons and the and the math homework waiting at home were becoming uh, uh really ugly and at the same time my high school was actually quite a bit of ways uh by car but you know when i had to return home i had to take uh, a bus home uh, public transportation and i had to transfer at least if i remember four times just to get back home and what i realized was one of the stops was a community college bus stop and uh, due to some time schedule change or something, there was like a 30-minute wait that uh, until the next bus came, and, and that was silly. So, uh, and, and I did so, but I found that these, you know, these doors were, and classes were open, and, and, you know, I was kind of like manually auditing these classes, but then I found that, oh, I could actually edit uh, classes. And I, I, I thought this would be the perfect excuse for me to get credits at this uh, community college. My parents will, will think that I'm doing something useful, and that way I don't have to go to go home so early. And you know, this <laughs> then caught on, and um, you know, I was taking classes that I found were kind of interesting, um, and not really having any rhyme or reason, but we're just taking random courses through it, and then summer vacations and, and such. And I, I, I found out wow, these credits I could actually use for uh, graduating uh, early from the high school. And what was interesting then, it, which happens a lot in my life, is that you know a lot of people said, no, that's not possible. It's never been done. No one's graduated early from this high school, et cetera, et cetera. But you know, from a unit's perspective, you know, I had the credits. And 
I think I'm still, if I'm not mistaken, the first and still only person from my high school that actually graduated a year early based on those credits. And what was also really, really interesting was that I was able to apply some of the leftover credits. I might have even used the credits twice, but use some of the leftover credits to meet some of my GE requirements in uh, college so that I didn't have to take as much a course load uh, as, say, a freshman might have to. And, and that allowed me to put a little bit more effort in, in running a company. But why I chose UC Riverside was also similar in that you had parents, Asian parents, and the joke was that Asian parents wanted their kids to either be a, a doctor or a lawyer. And my parents wanted me to be the doctor. So a couple right. of things clicked where they want me to be a doctor. Uh, I have this little small business going on and such. But... You know, I really don't want to be a doctor. I, I mean, I have some interest in being a doctor. I don't want to, you know, it's, it doesn't seem to be my life passion. But, you know, I'll listen to my parents. And in doing so, after researching, I found that UC Riverside actually has this program uh, called uh, uh, the UC, UCR, UCLA Biomedical Sciences Program, which is an accelerated medical program. And I thought this is just really great uh, that I can actually take this program and get done with medicine uh, earlier than going through normal med school. And it also happened to be close by. You know, I'm just out of curiosity, like, were you interested in looking at Caltech? Is Caltech being such a, you know, a, you know, like a tech-oriented school and being relatively close as well? Uh, uh, um, of your scores and stuff, you know, why uh, had you considered doing something like that? Um, I think my problem was that, and, and and I don't know how you one would measure this, but I'm not one to say that college for me was a strategic decision. Um, I wanted to just get it done with and make my parents happy and, and be a doctor. Caltech was probably not in the equation because they didn't have a medical program. Um, and, and, and frankly, I probably wouldn't have been smart enough to get into a Caltech. Um, I, I am probably one of the more, I, I'm probably closer to ADD in the sense that actually going through college and, and being a normal student would have been probably a difficult thing for me to do that I had this little med school thing going on and a, and a business on the side probably kept it busy enough and, and random enough for me to, to do this. But through the normal progression of things of taking the SATs and then taking GE courses and being a nice student probably was not my cup of tea to begin with. Right, right, right. And, uh, you know, how did you enjoy, I mean, how, yeah, I guess, it's, I guess, how, how did you feel about doing the medical school stuff? Because that, since that really wasn't your focus, it was sort of like the, almost, I mean, maybe not quite the equivalent of piano lessons in terms of just something you had to do. Um, I mean, you know, was it something that you actually learned to enjoy or was it just sort of uh, a grind for you? It was, I mean, you know, so I'm, a, I'm a science nerd geek by nature so it was actually very useful to uh and and very interesting and, and intellectually stimulating for me to to go through this course but when you look back on it i actually was very thankful that i took that course because when you end up doing what i've done in the past the med school angle does help in 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 really a lot of the the creativity and the problem solving and i say that and i talk to people about that because 
you know, I ran a computer company, but the ironic thing was that it wasn't necessarily the computer scientists that made the best programmers. And what ended up happening was that my my medical training allowed me to basically look at problems in such that, you know, how doctors do, where doctors will have patients and they'll come in and complain about something and they'll say, you know, you know it hurts here. But it's not necessarily correct, you know, that that's where the problem occurs. It might, be, it might be occurring somewhere else. And from a doctor, you're trained to find the problem by asking lots of questions and, you know, through, your, through deduction and, 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 and experimentation, find what the root cause of the problem is. So that training, I felt, was really, really helpful and really, really important for me future in life. And I look back on it and, and, and realize that a lot of what entrepreneurism is about is trying to solve problems in, in creative ways that you just weren't expecting. And that type of critical thinking uh, that, that, that medical doctors are trained for was uh, really, really helpful. And, you know, the, only, the, uh, the other uh, university major that is similar in nature is uh, physicists. You know, physicists will tend to uh, think in the abstract and, you know, a lot of what they do you can't see. Um, and it's a lot of it's theoretical. But, but when you get into that level, the way you structure your thinking, it, it becomes very, very useful. So when, when, I, when I was growing the company, a lot of our employees ended up being people with medical backgrounds and, and, and physics backgrounds. I think a lot of things like that can be quite serendipitous. I remember Steve Jobs talking about how when he was younger, he was in love with calligraphy. And then it was a kind of a phase in his life, and then he kind of forgot about it. And uh, later on in life, of course, fonts became so important on the Mac, and all that calligraphy was very useful, served him very well. Yeah, no, I, you know, I, I think that that story is also a great one in that I think after he got, uh, he basically quit going to the university, the university still allowed him to audit that and what, you know, in his case, he was able to audit classes that he found was interesting and that calligraphy class is exactly that. It, it, it stimulates your mind and, and it brings about a level of flexibility and, 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 and perspective that I think is uh, pretty important. So medical, medical training, definitely, you know, they throw a lot at you from different angles. And so to have your mind think in those terms, I think is very useful from a, from an entrepreneurial perspective. Right. Um, I, I guess I'd like to maybe, um, move, uh, move ahead a little bit and talk about, or, you know, ask you about, um, how you ended up, uh, selling your company to uh, Microsoft. Yeah, so we uh, evolved as a company. Whenever I give discussions about my company and I talk about this, most people expect a presentation of, oh, we did this and we did that and we were awesome and we were successful and everything was gangbusters and such. But what I tell people actually, entrepreneurs have been starting a venture is not as sexy as it, 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 it is usually found out in, in the press, that 98% of the time it's pulling your hair out and uh, and, 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 and really trying to solve the next problem. Um, so as a company, we started off in localization. Uh, and, and I say to a lot of people that that's probably our first failure, that I got bored with that aspect of it and didn't want to become a translation company. Uh, and basically, with the Japanese context that we established, we then became a company that uh, wrote device drivers for this new operating system called Windows for a bunch of Japanese companies that were creating everything from CD-ROM drives to, to printers. 
this got boring because uh, if you're the device driver guy, yeah. you're the you're the person always getting blamed by either Microsoft or the vendors. And so we ended up concentrating and working with uh, Sony and their camera division to see how we can reuse the camera for different things. And so one of the first smart aleck comment I made was, well, you know, why don't we do uh, video conferencing? And we actually created a pretty good product, but this also ended up being a failure because we didn't really understand the market dynamics. And then my next smart aleck comment was, why don't we do uh, fingerprint recognition because the algorithms are pretty similar in nature. And this, for the first time in the history of our company, became our first big hit. And so we then went on this route where we were doing fingerprints and then we were doing other what is known as biometrics, like uh, the facial recognition, the iris recognition. We ended up creating this platform that uh, was being used by many, many companies. Um, at this point, I guess ignorance is bliss, the world was going into this era of standardization, you know, how we have interoperability with different fingerprint units and so on and so forth. And so me, this, this 20, someone in his 20s, I still remember we were going up against the IBMs of the world, the Unisys of the world, Oracles of the world, and promoting our standards, and people weren't giving us the time of day at first. But um, at the end, we were able to convince Microsoft that... Uh, we had the superior technology, partly because we had been working with Microsoft for so long up to then. Um, and, you know, this this then took us to this next level. You know, I, uh, I still remember the Wall Street Journal article about and such, and we were very proud, and they took this forward. But we were then growing nominally. At the end of the day, uh, we realized that we were just kind of like the lock of a door of a house and some other things collided and we had uh, countries from around the world, whether they were Iraq or India or different places who were now embarking on creating national ID cards and Microsoft realized, Hey, this is a huge opportunity for them to look at this as uh, a credentialing opportunity and decided that they needed to just acquire the, the rest of us. And at that point, I mean, what size company were you in terms of, say, employees or revenue or, 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 or how, you know, how, whatever would best describe it? Uh, yeah, we weren't we weren't tremendously large per se back then. Um, the the revenue numbers and how they purchased one that's still kind of confidential, so I don't talk about that. But sure. yeah, we we had oh. Close to FTEs, we probably had about 60, uh, and then we had part-time and contractors that doubled that. Wow, okay. And, uh, you know, and it's thing is how you, you, you seem to like to be doing a lot of things at once. I mean, when you were bought by Microsoft, I mean, how did that work out, work out for you? Because I would imagine that being bought by a larger company, they're going to want you to really focus in on something that they're working on and not be, you know, going off in a different direction when you see an opportunity. Yeah, I can tell because uh, of uh, you know the, this, this gets into the mission part of things. But but from a Microsoft acquisition perspective, I wasn't as useful, and I realized from my personality that it, it would be very difficult for me to continue in a, in a large company. From them, what they're most interested in is the programmers that they acquire from the acquiring company, and so 
uh, uh, that company as it used to be. It was a big deal to to work for them, and uh, for them, when they did the acquisitions, they were most interested in integrating the programming staff. Since I wasn't the the cutting edge programmer as a lot of our programs were back then, um, you know, my my role was really semi retirement, and I always say that semi retirement for retirement for me was probably my biggest failure because it's actually very hard. Do that when you time company and then suddenly going from 100 miles an hour to zero is actually not an easy thing to do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, how, how long did you stay on with Microsoft? Uh, we were so th- there was a time there where we had employees go there, integrate, and so on. I let me see. I probably did that for about a year and then uh, got pretty uh, tired of that and uh, then moved on and ended up coming to Japan. Right. Now, now your, um, uh, your, your friend and uh, partner, Tosh, did he stay on or did he you know, want to do something else with you or how, how did, what happened there? Yeah, so he uh, also, you know, he's not the type where he, he would also work in a large uh, organization as well. So, uh, he also, at the same time, uh, left. He still is, is on the west coast of Japan, and I mean, not west coast of Japan. He's on the west coast of California, and helping out a number of uh, uh, ventures and uh, companies. So he's taking that next next generation of companies and 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 helping them out. Right, and and another thing I, I, that was interesting you talked about uh, was your involvement with helping um, the police, then ultimately even the FBI with. With like uh, breaking encryptions and, and things that are not evolved. Yeah, that was a actually interesting one because the the police found these computers and they you know they they were just sitting in this warehouse. But the problem they had was, hey, uh, we don't know who to, who they belong to and who they give back to. So and, that, and so I basically raised my hand like I always do in these situations and I said, oh, you know. Uh, was interesting was the thieves that did this uh, were meticulous in that they obviously were concerned that 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 the data on them can tie them to their owners. But what they found out was they formatted the computers as soon as they stole them, and by reversing the date timestamp, you could find out basically when those computers were stolen. And looking at the uh, criminal complaints, we found out who the owners were by when they filed their police complaints, and so they were able to put a they were able to put a case together and uh, arrest these people. So a few years later, we as a company have evolved into this uh, IT security company. We're doing fingerprints, and in order to do the fingerprints, we have to uh, encrypt the fingerprints because unlike passwords, it's difficult to change your fingerprints. And so we've become this encryption company, and we're doing these things. As an encryption company, uh, what do you do? You end up buying all your competitors' products to find out how they're built, you know, what their weaknesses are, uh, and, and so on. And in doing so, we found that a lot of products had different problems in them. They, they had different weaknesses. They had different backdoors. They had just design problems. And we kept a constant database of what the flaws in our competitors' programs were. And so from time to time, because of our assistance with the police in solving this local crime, they'd come to us and go, yeah, we have this uh, 
meth lab and you know this Excel file is encrypted. Can you help us? And you know, I said, sure, I'd help you decrypt it or, or do whatever. And then word got out, and I guess a friend of a friend from a police department then you know told a friend at the FBI or something. He goes, hey, we have this crazy company who who can help us open these doors. So we went from you know meth lab to terrorist cases where the FBI would come to us and say, Hey, you know, we have, we have this situation, we have this case, we have this data and, uh, we're, uh, stuck with this. Can you help us? And in most cases we would have the data, uh, based on that product to be able to, uh, decrypt it. What were the basic methods that you would use to, to crack, um, an encrypted file? I've always been curious about that and I've, I've never understood how that's actually done. Yeah. So, if they get the encryption right, which is still pretty difficult, but if we assume that they get the encryption right, the biggest problem, if I go by memory and recollection, uh, the biggest problem of any encryption product that is, that is around is how you store the key. And so encryption is not how strong or how many million years it takes to, to break the encryption. It is usually a key management problem. So you know, how do you store the password that decrypts this? And so that's where a lot of manufacturers of pro- products, at least back then, uh, had a hard time doing. It's, it's, you know, how do you do this? And so in, in real world terms, this is not an easy problem because you might have a product that will encrypt uh, your, your documents. And you, you, this is fine and dandy, but if you want to sell this to an enterprise company, you have situations where, okay, so what happens if the, the guy leaves or if he's fired and we need to get to his files? Well, you need to have these systems in place where it allows for their managers or the ID department to, to get into them, for example. And so when you create these situations where you have real-world requirements like when the guy gets fired, how do we get into this file, you end up creating weaknesses that uh, you know, people think of as maybe features, but uh, weaknesses that could be exploited by, by you know, people like us, hackers, whoever. And so... That's that's where a lot of the weaknesses lie. Where how you do the key management? Yeah, well, so if you had like an individual Excel file, like that you had mentioned, where say Meth Lab was keeping a, a list of their suppliers or, or the people they sell it to. I mean, how 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 would encryption of just a single file like that happen, or the decryption, I guess? Yeah, so Excel, you know, that in that case, what was probably easier back then was just a brute force and and. The the drug dealers probably weren't the smartest people on the planet, probably why they were drug dealers. But <laughs> um, so they weren't very long, and so Excel files were pretty easy to do in that you just brute force them. When it got complicated was when back then you had semi-sophisticated people started to use things like PGP and encrypting things. And um, what then happened was PGP and encryption itself in PGP was pretty difficult, but how they stored their keys or where they stored their keys became the weakness for that. Right. And so you would just, you would just know where the, the kind of places they would store those keys. It'd be somewhere else on the computer. You would just... yeah, so the problem was, yeah. So with, with this, with these encryption things was, and, and even to this day, I still think it's true is they're so damn hard to set up and set up correctly. And um, I, I think it's a problem of this IT security industry in and of itself, but it's hard to install and hard to set up and to do right. Because the problem with security is if you make even one mistake, that could be exploitable. And in the case of PGP, uh, you had situations where uh, 
it was pretty tough for people to use and they made a mistake and the key was left somewhere. Right. Wow. And uh, I, I guess, and since we're kind of coming to the uh, the end of the hour, um, I'd like to ask you this. But one other uh, thing, which I think is pretty uh, fascinating, is that you were asked to join an investigative committee uh, on the accident of the Fukushima nuclear, uh, you know, disaster. What? How, could you tell us a little bit about about that? Yeah. So I can't go into the details of the investigation since it's ongoing. But right now I'm in Japan and. Uh, my job most of the time before this disaster of March 11th was helping uh, a lot of the entrepreneurial ventures here. I, I teach at several universities on courses on innovation entrepreneurship and try to change Japan because the innovations here, unfortunately, you don't see, you don't hear too many Japanese companies that, uh, that really make their mark on the world these days. And so I'm trying to change that. And then we had this March 11th disaster. And you know, from that perspective, uh, incredibly enough, Japan uh, never really had an investigation commission uh, for any sort of disaster in its history. And in December of last year, the National Diet passed a law where they created the first ever uh, investigation commission that uh, in the United States is the equivalent of Act of Congress. And in doing so, it was the first of its kind. So it was very entrepreneurial in nature in that we had to create an organization to do an investigation of the nuclear accident. And one thing led to the other and says, hey, you know, who, who's good at creating a, an entrepreneurial organization? And, and my, my name came up. So <laughs> that's, that, that's one of the things I'm doing there in creating basically an entrepreneurial organ an entrepreneurial investigative organization within a very bureaucratic entity and uh, trying to get to the heart of what caused the disaster. Well, you, you know, you said that you, um, you're, you're trying to teach entrepreneurialism and, uh, and I guess cultivate some of what works really well, I guess, in the U.S., uh, especially particularly Silicon Valley, and, and, and cultivate that within the um, business community in Japan. I mean, how, how does that work? I mean, how, what, what, what challenges are, up you against, are you up against and how are you, I don't know, get, getting some of these ideas uh, across? Yeah, this is actually pretty difficult to explain to people in the U.S. just because we all take it for granted. But it's, it's really simple things like, you know, how you put together an organization, how you put together effective teams, how you work together, how you create a hierarchical a uh, group of people that can communicate and have ownership and actually get things done. This concept is actually very, very foreign here because uh, people are taught here not to express their opinions, to listen to the leader that, you know, is very age-based, that, uh, you know, creative expression is shunned upon. And so it's some of these very basic things that a lot of the rest of the world, especially in Silicon Valley, take for granted that, I'm trying to change and going, you know, in Japan, what you're doing here is, is actually backwards and to undo that. So unfortunately, this is not going to be a political action. It has to be an action through people like students that are and I tell the story of how you have to be a little bit crazy and do these things and understand what, you know, risk is and how you overcome that and, and how you then, if, if you fall down, how you get back up. These things um, really are never taught here. And so to teach that at a university level, some days I feel that it might be a little bit too late, but, but, but someone has to do it. And, and you see 
people who kind of get it and you see a slight movement, especially after the disaster here, to realize that that working for a large corporation uh, is probably not in their best interest, that that there are other opportunities and that they have to be responsible to themselves and that if they have these good ideas and such, that entrepreneurism isn't uh, such a, a bad road or, or necessarily very risky to, to, to go down on. I have a question for you. Um, are you teaching some of the cutting-edge um, techniques such as Scrum and Agile or are you um, mainly teaching techniques that maybe were more like 10 years or more, uh, I guess, before Scrum and Agile came into, into popularity over here? Yeah, I mean... I, Let's just say that even to get to such sophisticated levels, having people understand and, and, and mitigate against risk, we're, we're talking about some pretty basic concepts here. Uh, having people, to give an example, the problem with the Japanese educational system is that by high school, you basically find out whether you're a liberal arts or you're a science. And through that track, you know, your life is basically uh, one tract where you go to the university you go, the majors that you go down, and so on. And when you then graduate from university and you say you go into a company, it's very, very difficult for, for people with liberal arts to, to work with people in the sciences. It's almost that they're talking a different language. And how you then integrate and create good teams, we're, we're talking some pretty basic things, uh, is actually not as straightforward and so to get them to walk is even a challenge sometimes i see so even even the very concept of agile is is very foreign yes, really yes yeah but even agile stuff i mean that's even specific to software development i mean it's even a more of an organizational level of of sort of this you know i, I don't know how, how do you even get that across this idea of because there there is a hierarchy in these in these entrepreneurial ventures in the U.S., but it's sort of a looser looser type of hierarchy. It's more like, whereas it sounds like it's a stricter hierarchy. I mean, how 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 do you communicate that sort of change in perspective to them? Yeah, no, and it's exactly that. I think uh, the the book highlights this a little bit, but I'm very very thankful that my parents chose the high school that they did because they realized that in the United States, for you to become successful, you need to be able to state your opinion and to make a point. And so the high school they sent me to specialized in debate, and I, I perhaps became a little bit too good in that. And so my my parents uh, really hated it when I argued with them because I, you know, you tend to win at that point. But to be able to state your point, to make a logical argument, to have a discussion, to have a debate, is very antithesis to the educational process here in Japan. That. It's, it's really just rote memory, memorization, and listen to the teacher and just follow directions. And so you know, by the time I see them in college and they're in their early 20s, I have to undo, I don't know, at least 10 years of programming uh, and show that, no, no, you, you, you can no longer just uh, be a human Google. You can no longer just compete by replicating certain things because uh, – Japanese population by itself is going to lose to its neighbors in sheer numbers. It's 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 this creative process of how you take the innovation and actually make it into useful products or services. And so, yeah, it's not just a software development thing. It's it's an issue that affects not only industry but definitely politics, the educational system, the family structure. Right? It, it, it's become uh, a very systemic issue here uh, in that. Uh, 
it works when you have a very strong leader and a, a leadership system. And Japan, it, right after the war, has a system where uh, its ministries were very strong and it, it led the way. But because we're much more global and we're much more constrained and, and because the natural resources and such uh, have become much more competitive, there is no clear leader. And so in that structure, you need to create a new dynamic. And it, it's, it's just that Japan hasn't caught up with that. Right. No, just uh, just out of curiosity, though, you you have like companies like Sony and Toshiba that were very successful, and and they I'm I'm sure followed a more traditional or Japanese traditionally Japanese approach to business. I mean, why were they so successful and able to innovate and create such great products? Do you think? Uh, Sony is actually very non-traditional in Japanese. So when Morita started uh, Sony, he he was fighting the ministries and such. And the ministries basically told them, no, you, you cannot, you know, use this resource to, to create the transistor radio. And, and Maria basically said, screw you, and, and went to New York and, and started selling this stuff. So <laughs> Maria was known as a maverick uh, in Japan. I'm not sure about the Toshiba or other angles, but a lot of the companies that we still remember as Japan, they were all actually mavericks. And it's, it's, it's very rare that you see an established company that's still kind of hanging around in Japan. The problem, of course, with Maverick companies is when the founder owner passes away, the the entity basically goes more towards you know the usual Japan Inc. and they they lose their vibrancy and then they kind of go away. And it's it's that change mentality. It's getting people to rah rah and and do cool things and do interesting things that really you don't see as often in Japan these days. It's almost like you're teaching rebellion. It's not rebellion. It's if you know that there's a problem to express it and to offer ways of fixing it and to have ownership in what you're doing instead of just listening to the leader who may just steer you down that wrong path. Right, right. Well, uh, William, I, I guess we're about out of time here, so we don't want to keep you any longer than, uh, than you have available. And we really appreciate you uh, giving us the time that you, uh, that you have. No, no, thank you. But just before you go, um, Jason, could, we, could you just uh, give the book title, um, William's book? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, it's, a, it's really a, a fascinating book. It, it, it's called An Unprogrammed Life, Adventures of an Incurable Entrepreneur. And uh, I highly recommend it. I've really enjoyed reading it. And uh, I'm, not the, I'm at the last uh, part where you uh, go to Japan. So, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm enjoying it. So I would yeah, definitely recommend uh, many people buy it and, and read it. Thank you very much. So, William, well, thanks again for coming on uh, the show. We appreciate it, and we wish you uh, the best of luck with everything that you're uh, trying to make happen in Japan, and uh, be interested to see what comes out of the uh, Fukushima investigation as well. Yes, thank you. Thank you for having me. All right, that's a wrap. We're out. We're out.